Hello, learners, and welcome to Learn On Podcast, the science show by kids for kids. I'm your host, John C., and I'm here today with a very special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm Shiv Biglani. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Osmosis. Awesome. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about digital health in the context of how technology can help with education. And so I think the best way to start our conversation is what is Osmosis and how does it work? Yeah, Osmosis is a learning platform used by a couple million current and future healthcare professionals, uh, as well as actually high school students and college students who are interested in careers in science and healthcare and medicine. Um, we started the program when we were medical students at Johns Hopkins. So we did two years of med school, left Hopkins to, to basically build out this learning platform that incorporates a lot of evidence-based learning techniques ranging from old techniques like spaced repetition, uh, which many of your listeners may be familiar with, um, is a proven way to use flashcards to remember things for longer, um, to multimedia learning and flipped classroom. Uh, many of your listeners probably are users or familiar with Khan Academy. A bunch of our team used to be at Khan Academy. They built out their MCAT and medical and health um, topics. But then they joined Osmosis because we wanted to focus in on training healthcare workers because there's such a big global shortage. So since they've joined, we not only have this tech platform that has all these cool kind of features like spaced repetition, test and test learning, question banks, et cetera, but also over 2,000 videos that are maybe five to 10 minutes long that basically summarize 60-minute lectures you get in medical school or nursing, PA school, into these really fun, animated, memorable, short-form videos that hundreds of schools now have adopted in their curricula. Yeah, that's great. And I've been able to look at a few of Osmosis videos myself, and I think that the style of animation is so great, especially for myself, because I'm a visual learner in condensing all this information that can become really heavy and dense if you're just listening to someone speak in a classroom. So that's fantastic. And I think you touched on this a little bit, but what specifically inspired you to create Osmosis? And you were also a medical student when you got the idea, right? So can you maybe walk us through a little bit of like that light bulb moment when you knew that you wanted to embark on this journey? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of like what you said in your intro, it's by students for students. And very much this this was our first company I started. And it, it, the reason I think we did well with it is because we were the customers, we were the end users. And so we were basically building this for ourselves. The, the light bulb moment, you know, as often as the case with light bulb moments, wasn't just one moment, there was a lot of preparation for that moment. There's, you know, I'm sure listeners are familiar with Pasteur, who famously said, luck favors the prepared mind, something along those lines. And so you know, we had a, a lot of luck in osmosis, but we prepared for it. So my co-founder had a PhD in neuroscience before starting med school. And I had written two educational books before starting med school because I'd done a lot of high school student prep for SAT, ACT, college admissions, and also science research. I did a lot of science research in high school. And so we wanted to build a tool just for ourselves and our classmates that incorporated a lot of these techniques that we knew about from our backgrounds, right? I was teaching students. So I was a, a teacher. I knew how to, you know, question, I knew what test and test learning was. Ryan, my co-founder with his PhD in neuroscience knew about attention spans and the fact that we had to condense material into five, 10 minutes. And so we were sitting in lectures in anatomy in our first few weeks at Hopkins Med and realized that I think it was week three, I started quizzing Ryan on week one content. And we're like, man, we already forgot like half of this stuff. And so we got a little worried that, hey, this is a four-year program. We're forgetting things almost as quickly as we're learning them. How do we make it better for ourselves? And so the first kind of incarnation of osmosis was literally 
test enhanced learning. Let's take some questions. Let's do some spaced repetition with them. And I texted Ryan and a bunch of other friends some questions after lectures, not even a mobile app. This was 2011, 2012. I just sent them literally a text message and asked people to reply with their answer. And they loved it. And then we were like, well, okay, we need more questions and we need a mobile app. And so that was the first version of Osmosis when we actually took time to, to really build it. Yeah, that's awesome. And I was actually doing a little bit of reading and research into Active Recall myself recently for a different project. So I think it's great how um, new technologies allow us to really incorporate that in our learning and education and help it stick. So we're not just memorizing things temporarily and then regurgitating it for a test and then forgetting it after, like you said. So how can digital education platforms like Osmosis help students learn in a more efficient way than traditional in-person education? I know you mentioned um, the active recall aspect of it, but if there's anything else you'd like to share. And also, are there any benefits that traditional education models may still have? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think, you know, content is fairly commoditized at this point. And not only is it commoditized, you can learn anything online for free, right? Coursera, Khan Academy, Osmosis, you can pretty much learn anything online for free. Why do people go to in-person educational programs, whether that's an MBA or college? I think they're, the main reasons in-person still matters. Obviously, there's some programs that require in-person. Medical school is one example where, you know, if you want to be a surgeon, you can't just do that online. You've got to go actually scrub in. There's a ton of skills-based learning that needs to be done in person. So that's clearly an advantage. But another big one is people. Ultimately, everything com comes down to relationships, whether that's who you work with in your career, who you study with, who you partner with, who you spend your life with. So it all comes down to relationships. And I still am a firm believer that those are best developed in person. And so one thing I found most useful going to college and then med school was not the content. I Frankly, I forgot my thermodynamics content from college, but the professors I worked with, you know, who helped open doors for me, who helped mentor me, who are still friends, people I call on. So I think, and then my classmates, obviously my best friends I've developed through college and med school and other programs like that. I think that's still really important. As far as digital education, I think the reason we're all excited by it is not only it, because it's it made the uh, the marginal cost of delivering education close to zero, right? So one of the things I'm most proud of with Osmosis is that we provide tons of free access to the entire learning platform to tens of thousands of people all over the world and more if they ask us. For example, when the war in Ukraine started, a lot of medical students in Ukraine were displaced and obviously lost a lot of things. And so we gave literally, I think, 10,000 Ukrainian med students free access to osmosis. In Syria years ago, over the last several years, we've given, again, thousands of Syrian medical students access since their civil war started. And many of them actually went out, came about and translated a bunch of our content into Arabic. So it's kind of been a mutually beneficial relationship we have an Osmosis Vietnamese channel, similarly, 100,000 subscribers to Osmosis Vietnamese. And so I think the crowdsourcing aspect that you can have on digital education platforms where you can learn from a, a nursing student in Vietnam and they can learn from a medical student in Bulgaria is really cool. And I, I've taken full advantage of that with Osmosis where ever since Elsevier, which is a large publishing company that acquired Osmosis two years ago, I've traveled all over to Portugal, Rwanda, Thailand, London, and met with students and faculty who use Osmosis regularly. I'm very excited, obviously, about the generative AI. I think everyone will have their own individual tutor. Many people already have their individual tutors. And actually, you know, if you don't mind, I'd love to ask you a question of, as a current high school student at a really great, really great school, Exeter. You know, how are you and your classmates using generative AI right now? Or is it banned or are you guys able to use it for assignments? How are you thinking about that? 
Yeah, no, there's definitely been a lot of debate about that. And I know with disciplinary committees as well, just considering things like plagiarism, teachers have been kind of freaked out about how how prevalent Chad GPT and other tools are just because it's it's a completely different ballgame with how you evaluate whether a work is really a student's own and it's creative. I think one thing that I know has helped myself and a lot of students is using ChatGPT as kind of a tool to help organize notes that I've taken in class. But yeah, I think there's also definitely a lot of gray area with how people can use it to develop creative things, writing essays, things like that. Because there's also the question of even if you use it as a tool to assist with editing, is that really considered your your own work? You know, so I feel like there's definitely a lot more research and development to do with how we evaluate those kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the same kind of debates and conversations you all are having in high school are happening at every level, you know, in college and med school. I was just on a call with several faculty at a med school about this issue. So it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. But I think like most technologies, I'm sure, you know, you take math class, or sometimes math class lets you use a calculator, sometimes it doesn't. So it's like any technology and the worry I have is just, you know, how do we get students to a point where they understand how to best use these tools, what the limitations are? Because uh, if they just kind of randomly plug in prompts or numbers into a calculator, or they're using a thesaurus and they don't know the connotations of words, they just kind of sub in a word because the thesaurus said this is a synonym, but the word has a totally different connotation. You know, I think I, I worry that it's going to reduce people's critical thinking skills. So you have to get people to a students, any learner to a, a certain level of critical thinking and understanding independent of any of these tools. But then those who use these tools as someone who's hired hundreds of people for my company, absolutely. One thing I'll let, let your learners know is I would much rather hire a, a student who may not be as smart, but has the right attitude and knows how to use these tools rather than like a genius who has no idea how to use these tools, because I think there's a productivity advantage that's coming already. Yeah, definitely. And again, I feel like there's such an important balance to uphold because it can get really easy to just be carried away by all of the power that these new generative AI tools have without realizing that you're kind of compromising the quality of your own education by not giving yourself the opportunity to be as creative as you would have been if you weren't relying on these things. But then at the same time, if you're really, really stuck on a problem that you're just practicing and it's not graded or anything, and that AI tool can help you to solve it instead of agonizing over it for a really long time. And there's also that big opportunity there. So yeah, it's definitely something that has huge implications, both positive and negative for the future of education. Yeah, very cool. Thanks for sharing those thoughts. Yeah. And I think it was great how you also mentioned how osmosis has increased the accessibility of education. I was going to talk about that as well, but you like covered all the bases um, and improving equity in the medical field, especially like being able to bridge language gaps is also another thing that technologies like AI are helping out with. So I think it's great that this is just able to reach so many people and give people opportunities for education that we may not have had before. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the reasons I love working at Osmosis is we, we have 2.8 million YouTube subscribers. If you go to youtube.com for slash osmosis, and I love reading the comments occasionally because it isn't just med students or nursing students in the US, it's actually patients all over the world too. And I think ultimately, what's the point of medical education? Clearly to train healthcare workers. But what is the point of healthcare workers? To help people be healthier and live longer and healthier lives. And ultimately, I think if patients, you know, normal general public people take or get more educated about their health, 
and avoid getting preventable lifestyle issues like diabetes or cardiovascular disease. They know what statins are. They know what insulin is. We can reduce the burden of disease. And so that's pro that's what motivates me the most right now is, is using education to get to the general public so that we can reduce the burden of disease across around the world. No, definitely. That's a great point. And even just the ability to empower patients to understand if they have some kind of rare medical condition or even a more common one where just the mechanics of how it works and the implications that it has, if it's not really well known, I think it's really important that patients are able to advocate for themselves and that can help bridge the gap between doctor and patient as well. So definitely great points that you brought up. It was wonderful learning more about osmosis. So now to kind of shift gears, I would love to talk a little bit more about yourself. So you mentioned Osmosis has recently been acquired by Elsevier. So how has Osmosis grown since this? And also has it opened up more opportunities for your own personal development? Yeah, absolutely. It's been it's been wonderful. You know, so we were growing Osmosis kind of independently full time for five years and grew it to 100 teammates, 2 million YouTube subscribers, about 10 million in revenue. And then we were acquired by this large publisher, Elsevier, which to put in context, if you've heard of the show Grey's Anatomy, that's based off the famous book, Grey's mm -hmm. Anatomy, which Elsevier has been publishing for decades. Elsevier is 140 years old. They're based in the Netherlands and have this storied history of training literally millions of healthcare professionals. And so when we joined Elsevier, we went from 100 teammates at Osmosis to 9,000 teammates at Elsevier around the world. And that's been a real value add for us because not only do we now have access to other uh, resources, for example, a sister company is 3D4 Medical. They make the best uh, 3D anatomy uh, image model, including the first ever fully from the bottom up woman model. Most anatomy is taught with male models or, you know, uh, slightly adapted male models to, to make them look a little female. Our team at 3D4 Medical updated, built the model from the ground up, uh, and also added various skin phenotypes. So it's the most diverse of all the anatomy models, which obviously is an important thing moving forward for how we educate people and have representation. So we have those capabilities now where Osmosis didn't have 3D imaging capabilities, but now with 3D for medical, we have teammates who do that really well. Then we also have people who have relationships all around the world. For example, you know, I'm South Asian, as you can probably tell by my name. And, you know, we've never before we had never really signed any contracts in India. We have a ton of students in India who use osmosis, but I've never gone to visit schools in India. But we have a whole team in India that's distributing osmosis. And so wow. now we have, uh, I think, two medical schools in India that have officially adopted osmosis. But most interestingly, we have this large pro program with the Indian government to train 250,000 ASHA workers who are community healthcare workers who themselves will help provide pr very primary care like vaccine education and, and delivery, preeclampsia screening for obstetrics patients to tens of millions of, of, of patients all around India. And we're translating our video content into nine different Indian languages. So that kind of pro pro um, collaboration would not have been possible without being part of Elsevier. So it's been a really wonderful experience. And we have some wonderful leaders like the CEO of Elsevier, Kumsal Bayezid, who's from Turkey, who's been a major supporter of osmosis and what we've been doing, uh, as well as Jan Herzog, who runs the health division, who's from Germany. So it's super international, which is something I really love and, and respect. That's wonderful. I love that you've been able to expand your horizons so much and increase the diversity and accessibility as we talked about previously. So it was great to hear about that. And then I think I had read you talking about how a lot of medical students tend to be really entrepreneurial and 
I guess, engage in business more. So I'm just curious in hearing about what prior experiences helped you succeed in building osmosis, what skills you brought to the table, and then what you had to just pick up and learn from experience. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think, you know, in high school and college, as I mentioned, I did a lot of science research. A lot of the skills I developed, knowing that I wanted to go to med school or research, I was MD-PhD track originally, translated very well to entrepreneurship. For example, back in high school, I would do a science project, which obviously takes a lot of time. Like you have to first convince a research mentor to bring you into their lab. You have to be gritty because a lot of research is ups and downs and you may get negative results and it's not all up and to the right. And then you also have to have ex excellent verbal and oral and, and written presentation skills to do science fairs. Oftentimes to people who are more, you know, 30, 40 years older than you, who've, you know, one of the guys who judged me in science fair was a Nobel laureate. And like, you have to be able to defend your science research against, you know, with them. So that experience gave me a lot of confidence over the years that then translated really well into building a company because you have to have confidence. You have to know, you have to have grit, be able to you know, realize that life and, and a startup or a research project is a marathon, not a sprint. So you'll have negative results, you'll have, you know, bad hires, you'll have customers you lose, competition emerges, and you just have to kind of get through that and be confident in your vision. You have to be able to convince people to join you. I've hired tons of people older than me, you know, some people like 20 years older than me. I've had to get venture capital investors on the capitalization table for osmosis. One of whom is, you know, was 85 when he invested and had, was an early investor in Apple and Home Depot and made, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars with those kind of things. So I think that's one of the things that translates really well. A lot of people who go to med school or, or health professional programs, they know how to have grit. They study hard. I think one thing that I'd see a lot of med students not do when they don't pursue entrepreneurship and not everyone needs to, right? Like we obviously need people who, who are practicing day to day and not necessarily being distracted by, you know, startups or whatever is I think fear. A lot of people operate from fear. A lot of people choose the risk averse path and people who go to med school or engineering or law school know that it's typically stable and, and a stable income and a good life. And so the risk aversion of leaving one of these programs to do something so unknown, like a startup is, is high. And then the second is, I think sometimes that that grit can be negative. When you become so attached to a specific identity that you've been working towards all your life, that you can't fathom changing at a certain point. And especially in the age of AI, so many things are changing so quickly that if you're committed to be a dermatologist or a radiologist, you know, in 10, 15 years, a lot of that diagnostic stuff, in fact, in five years or less, a lot of that diagnostic stuff will be taken up by AI. And it may not necessarily replace what you do as a dermatologist or radiologist. It may let you see more patients, deliver more care, more accessibly for less money. Um, but certainly I'd be thinking about it. And so making sure that if you are pursuing a per certain path, you know why you're doing it, you're you're open to change because that's, my mom always told me the only thing constant in life is change. And in general, you're trying to just do something that you're passionate about, not that someone like a parent or someone else is telling you you should be passionate about. That's certainly great advice. And I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are also at a young age, very ambitious and have dreams about doing great things in the future. So I'm really glad that you could share that with us. And you mentioned that risk of choosing that decision of whether to leave the program that you work so hard towards. And so you left medical school to work further on osmosis. And then if I remember correctly, you're now you recently returned. So can you tell us more about that decision and how that played out for you? 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for doing your research on that. And so interestingly, when I left med school, I had the ability to just defer. And that was a, a kind of a blessing because I didn't actually, it wasn't that hard a decision to leave. Like it, it, was, it was a really hard decision at the time because I had these ideas of what I would do and go straight through. And, you know, I wanted to, you know, be a doctor sooner, but, you know, it wasn't hard because I knew I could just defer, right? I would just keep deferring. And some med schools only let you defer for one year, but Johns Hopkins was a little more flexible and let me keep deferring. So I was able to keep growing osmosis and, you know, it was very relevant to Hopkins. It was health education. We were training medical students and doctors all over the world. but after we sold, I realized, you know, so much of building any organization, whether it's a startup or a club in college or high school, is this idea of succession and making sure that, you know, if there's still a need for what you've built, that it still is able to serve people. And I, you know, whenever I embark on something, I, I'll always think about kind of what the end game is. And, you know, is it possible to continue having impact, even if I'm no longer at the organization? And so, like in college, I started this research association, Harvard College Undergraduate Research Association, and it's still going on, still putting on conferences, still helping students get into research activities. And I love that. That's great because I haven't done anything operationally for it in you know 15 years, but it's still going on. So for, with osmosis, similarly, I was, you know, I wanted to make sure that if I had left like three years ago or four years ago, company probably would not have survived or thrived. But now that we're part of Elsevier, we have 9,000 teammates, and there's a you know a lot of people. The company itself has been around 140 years. It's in good hands. And so I, I talked to Kum Salanyan, who I'd mentioned earlier, and they gave me leave to go to med school and hopefully fulfill this personal goal of mine. And largely, I, I wrote a whole Forbes article that we could link to, six reasons why I've gone back. And one of the main reason was just patient care. I really miss one-on-one -on -one interactions with people, whether it's students or patients. And oftentimes the most meaningful and also the best ideas come from those individual relationships and conversations. I love the scale we've achieved with osmosis, but I got my day to day was very much like sales or podcasts like this, which are, which are all fun, but they aren't necessarily like, okay, this patient in front of me has an opioid addiction. What kind of things can we help them with to, to get them off opioids? So yeah, those are some of the reasons I've, I've gone back. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And I also my dream is to go to medical school as well. And again, there might be detours or a twist of fate later, but at least for now, that's, I know that that's what I want to do. And I really love the idea of patient care and being able to engage with people. So I think it's great that you were able to defer and work so much on osmosis and now you're able to go back. And this is just uh, a great example for our listeners that sometimes the path that you've drawn up in your mind may not be the best one, or it may be just in a later time period. As you said, change is the one thing that's always constant. So definitely great thing to keep in mind. And now to wrap up and talk more about the future, I just want to know a little bit more about from the initial vision you have of osmosis to what it is now. Have there been any significant changes that have surprised your old self or how has that the idea that you first had developed to what it is now? Yeah, it's a great question. There's so many people I've met through my own podcast and also working on osmosis who've done this. One good example is a lot of pre-health professionals or health professionals may be familiar with the Netflix docuseries Diagnosis, or there's a New York Times column with the same name. The person who created that is a physician at Yale named Dr. Lisa Sanders, who's wonderful. I've had her on the podcast. She started med school at 37 after already being a TV journalist for over a decade or 15 years before that. And it was really because she had that zigzag career that she took this journalism background, combined it with her love of her new love of medicine when she joined med school and created this 
amazing Netflix docuseries, as well as was met, chief medical consultant for House MD, which a lot of a lot of listeners probably have heard of or seen. So those kind of like some of the most interesting careers can be had when you combine different ideas from different fields together. So I want to make that clear. As far as what surprised me about how Osmosis has evolved, certainly, you know, we were originally just a tech company, a tech play with like, hey, upload your documents, like lecture notes, we'll automatically create questions for you, and then send those to you via your mobile app to quiz you on it. I realized a couple of years in that content is king, and we needed to have a really good content strategy. So that's why we started building those videos, which helped get a lot more people into it. And then when we built it, we didn't realize how many, as I said, patients and family members would actually consume these videos. So we're the largest health education channel on YouTube, which I would never have expected. And we have a real strong partnership with YouTube itself, YouTube Health, uh, which has helped us build co content on COVID, rare diseases. The CEO of YouTube tweeted out about osmosis and rare disease content uh, back in February on Rare Disease Day. And again, one of the most gratifying things for me is if you just look at the comments on these videos, just go to YouTube and look up like heart failure or diabetes or lupus. And if you see the osmosis video, which is pretty easy to tell based on our visual style and thumbnail, read the comments. It isn't just, again, medical students or, or nurses. It's patients and family members who said, thanks for this video. I finally understand what I've been suffering from, or I finally know what my child has to go through. That's super heartwarming. So I love, I think that's been the most surprising and also the most gratifying thing of, of building osmosis for me. That's fantastic to hear. And I wish you all the best with future endeavors. I'm sure that osmosis will only continue to grow. So from your experiences of working in osmosis, what do you see in the future of online education, especially for medicine? I know we talked a lot about AI in education and also how it may support doctors more in diagnosis. But yeah, just what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the, it's so hard to predict what kind of careers people will need in the next 10, 15, 20 years. And so one clear thing, though, is adaptability and change as we discussed. So students learning how to learn is going to be extremely important because, again, the careers that they think they're going into may look very different in 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, and so being adaptable and being open to learning how to learn is very important. Um, and then the other thing I would say on the future of online education I'm excited because, you know, so many macro trends are converging, right? So the cost of energy is going way down, you know, solar panels are getting way better, renewables, you know, there's some potential breakthroughs in nuclear fission. So cost of energy is going down, connectivity is going up, right? Because we have Starlink, we have all these other satellite-based companies because SpaceX and these other Blue Origin exist. So the ability for people everywhere to be connected has increased. So, and then because cost of energy is going down, they're going to be able to have mobile phones and laptops and stuff that are powered. And then education has become cheap and commoditized because as I said, content's already commoditized, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, Khan Academy, blah, blah, blah. But also now personalized tutoring will be commoditized with AI, right? So imagine a world where I think about the world in terms of neurons a, a little bit, where part of what made humans, homo sapiens so... Um, successful as a species. Yuval Noah Harari talks about this and Matt Ridley, two, two great authors I recommend to anyone to read, is not just because our brains aren't necessarily the biggest in the world, right? And certainly there's a lot of animals out there that have more capabilities than us, like octopi or like dolphins. They have echolocation that we can't even dream of. So they have capabilities that we can't see. Hawks can see things way further and better than humans can. What made humans special is not only the organization of our brain, but the fact that our brains connect. Right. There's more 
collaboration. So we can divide labor, we can produce a transistor because there's a thousand different people who are involved in that process from regions that they'll never meet. So imagine billions more people going online and having the collective brain power increased. It's like getting more neurons in your brain and then you know having astrocytes in these glia that support those neurons. So that's a long way of saying that I think the future of online education is basically going to unlock tons more developments because we'll have so many more smart people collaborating, communicating, and then they're all going to be enabled by AI assistants, AI tutors, AI physicians that help them live healthier and longer lives. And so it's unimaginable how quickly we're going to compound the next you know, 10, 20 years. One last thing I'll say is the, the guy who started OpenAI, when the co-founder Sam Altman had this really great talk a couple of months ago, where he, the way he visualizes it, that's pretty remarkable is imagine the last 500 years worth of industrial progress from the printing press to the steam engine to, you know, satellites being, you know, imagine that that amount of progress of 500 years happening in the next 10 years. Right. So it's just unimaginable. I think what, what we're going to be able to have assuming, you know, nuclear war and artificial general intelligence don't kill us all, but you know, hopefully that doesn't happen. Yeah, no, I think that was, as a neuroscience enthusiast, that was a great analogy, definitely pointing out the collaborative measures of learning, just improving everything is great. And I also really liked how you mentioned learning how to learn. Definitely, it's been an uphill journey for myself personally, like transitioning to high school, taking really challenging classes, self-studying for APs, and being able to figure out what works for me uniquely. And then also just in general, helping with being able to absorb all of this content is such a powerful skill for students to have. And I really love that Osmos is able to empower students to learn in a more efficient and exciting way. So yeah, it was great talking with you. I learned so much and I'm sure listeners really enjoyed it as well. And in the description, we'll also be sure to include the link to the Osmosis website, the YouTube channel, and then the podcast and article that you mentioned if listeners are interested in learning more. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Johnsey. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and the interest. And as I said to you, if I can be helpful to you or any of your listeners who are interested in osmosis, just contact me. I'm shiv at osmosis.org. I do a lot of mentorship and I'm happy to be helpful however I can. Of course. Thank you so much. Thank you.